Yes or no? Don't you love hearing uh, the behind-the-scenes story? We all want that, right? Uh, you know, from a movie, from a historical event. Uh, your kids, uh, parents, I'll ask. Do you have kids ever go, uh, Mom, how did you and Dad meet? Tell us the story. And then you can tell the story. And even though they hear it 40 times, they just, it's like, it's just fun for them. They just love that kind of stuff. It's, behind, it's like they, they have, they're on the inside. They get it. They, they're on the inside. They're on the know. Um, everybody loves that stuff, not just kids. I was looking at the, my news feed the other day, and at the bottom of the news feed, uh, they have these little teasers. I've said this before. They have these little teasers that really are gateways for advertisers, but they do tell, you know, they do give you a little story. And so the teaser uh, for this one was about Gilligan's Island. Do you, know, do you know Gilligan's Island? Okay. It's been in syndication for 50 years. It's, uh, it was on for three seasons, and it's been in syndication ever since then. And... Um, it, this ridiculous, impossible show from the 60s of seven castaways on a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour, remember? And uh, uh, the little ship, you know, the, the weather started getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of that fearless crew, the minnow would have been lost. The minnow would have been lost, I tell you. And uh, it, it always was uh, amazing to me because you had... Uh, you know, this little ship, and you got a billionaire on, uh, on the ship, and, and then you got a movie star. And uh, the billionaire uh, couple, they had different clothes every single show, and they were going on a three-hour tour. And I, even as a little kid, I'm going, why did they, did they bring that many clothes with them? It was, anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, really, I, the thing, what it said on the little teaser, uh, it said, behind the scenes at Gilligan's Island. So I said, ooh, you know, I Always wondered about the professor and Marianne, you know, Big Island. So uh, I ended up reading the story. Uh, a couple of things of interest, nothing uh, salacious or out of line, not that I was looking for that. But uh, seeing the story behind the story stimulates fascination in us for some reason. That's why when you're at ShopRite and you're waiting, you know, and, and this person's taking like forever, you're reading every single headline, aren't you? And you're saying, and you really want to pick it up. I mean, sometimes you don't do it because you're afraid someone's going to see you, you're like, you know, picking up. The globe, I really, sh but but you, you kind of want to get the story behind. Okay, oh, they're getting divorced. What happened? Who was it? Whose fault? What's going on? And, and you kind of want to get the story behind the story. Um, and listen, a lot of times, and I think most times, the story behind the story is the real story. That's that's really what the thing is about. Uh, I think that's very often true about our Christian lives. Most of the time, God in our lives is working behind the curtain, so to speak. It's one of the reasons that we have what is called faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. See, the Bible seems to indicate that God works behind the scenes. And whether you believe that or not, you say, well, you know what, is that, that, is that, big, that big a deal? Yeah, it's really a big deal, and here's why. Depending on whether you believe that God works behind the scenes or not will determine how you, in this world, will handle the challenges that will surely come or have come already into your life. And there are two things you got to know, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. The two things you need to know about God working behind the scenes. Number one is the fact that God works in the shadows. God is working behind the scenes. I believe that God works in the shadows. In fact, he has for a really, really long time. Case in point, the book of Esther. 
Lee Eggcloff had a, uh, a great quote on that. He said, God is so behind the scenes in this story that he's never even mentioned in the whole book. Man, that's really being behind the scenes, isn't it? They don't even mention, don't even mention your name. When we come to the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned. There are no overt miracles. There are no prayers. There's no activities that you would normally associate or link to religious activities in the entire story. And, and you know, you look at it, and if someone doesn't know that God's working behind the scenes, you would think that this is really an entertaining tale of palace intrigue in the Persian court and that God is really not present there at all. And if you were to believe that, then you are in mortal danger of one day, maybe today, finding yourself emotionally hanging out there on a flimsy limb all alone when the challenges of life come your way, as they surely will. But listen, that is how God has worked for a long, long time. God often works in the shadows, in the hidden places. And because he does, because he does work like that, we often misunderstand. We even, a lot of times, even miss his active participation with men and with women. We understand and we even uh, seek God, the God, I should say, that worked through Elijah. Remember Elijah, Mount Carmel, with the, the prophets of Baal? And he's laughing at him and saying, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe he can't hear. You know, he's got you know, a little wax in his ears. Why don't you scream a little louder? You know, maybe, and then he'll answer in fire. And, we know, you know, we see that and we, we see God answering in fire on Mount Carmel in heat. Parting of the Red Sea, love it. Plagues on God's enemies, providing meat and bread for his children who are doing figure eights out in the desert. Uh, you know, uh, uh, having water come from a rock in the middle of nowhere to quench their thirst. Bring it on. We get it. We love it. We do. It's what Sunday school material is all about. But the shadows, having to look for God in the shadows, it's not, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Exciting. As I said, Sunday school stories where God's working through ordinary activities, man, it, it's, it's hard to find those, really hard to find them, of God working in the normal activities and circumstances of daily life. Brian Gregory notes that miracles abounded from the Garden of Eden where God walked and talked with his people to Abraham where he appeared to the patriarch to, you know, Moses and the rumblings and fire on Mount Sinai, to the prophets who now became, uh, the prophets were the intermediaries between God and his people. But after that, if you look in the Old Testament, and I've recently gone through most of the, uh, uh, the Old Testament again, uh, when you go through the Old Testament, you slowly see God and his miraculous power seem to withdraw. It seems to recede. It seems to take almost like a, a back seat. No pillar of, you know, no clouds and pillars of fire, no manna, no fantastic visible manifestations of glory, only sporadic miracles. At the beginning of 1 uh, Samuel, there are a few miracles. By the time you get to the end of 1 Samuel, there's hardly any. There's hardly any. And you get into 2 Samuel, the next book, there's like almost none. Uh, from there, God's presence continues to recede. Step by step. Samuel's the last person to whom God is said to have revealed himself. Solomon. Remember David's son, Solomon, the great king? 
He's the last person to whom God is said to have appeared. Elijah is the last person through whom God does a public miracle, like I said, bringing down fire on Mount Carmel. And in the next chapter, after he does that through Elijah's ministry, there's a major shift in the Old Testament. God declares that he will no longer be found in dramatic manifestations like wind, like earthquakes, like fire, but he will be heard in the sound of a low whisper, a still, small voice, even through the sound of silence. And as it turns out, this is the last time in the Old Testament story that the text says, the Lord said anything to anyone. About a century later, Hezekiah asked for the shadows to uh, back up on the steps. That's the last miracle in the Old Testament narrative. So did God stop working? Pastor, are you telling me that God no longer does the big miracle type things? No, I am not saying that. But I think that most people see that their experience in their life much more closely mirrors Esther than Exodus. I just believe that. I mean, how many people have witnessed or been part of a very obvious, in other words, everybody in the room, very obvious, very conspicuous supernatural work of God? Okay? Uh, uh, not a lot. Not, some. Some, definitely. So we're not unusual. The way we hear from God today is not unusual. In fact, Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 15 says this, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, it is obvious that God who displays himself with an in-your-face presence early on seems to positively recede from view to the point that many wonder if he is even involved in the history of his people. Here is the danger with that. If you believe that the world, and many people do, if you believe that the world operates merely according to natural scientific law and that the events of history are wholly driven by politics and economics and psychology and sociology, independent of the purposes of God, you know, who kind of is just far off, he got the whole thing going, and now he's just looking, you know, he's playing golf on Saturn or doing something, uh, you know, like that, then you will become, or you already are, a functional deist. So God set it all in motion, and now he's not, you know, immediately, in an immediate way, involved in the lives of his children. And that means when life becomes unbearable, and, and, and evil seems to be on an inexorable march that you suspect will ultimately overwhelm you. You will be devastated, no doubt. When evil men, like Doug just read about, Haman, brilliant and evil, terrible combination, deadly combination, when men like that seem out of control, when they seem to prosper, when you know the righteous people, the people of God, seem to be hard-pressed, when our child is sick, when our business is sinking, you will be left all alone on a very tender, thin limb, left to, as one of my landladies used to say, the fates. She believed in the fates. And you'll be left to that too. Listen, God often works in the shadows, but he works. Isaiah 46 says, My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. What I have said 
that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Job, after all his trial, all his tribulation, and Job, uh, near the end of the book, says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. The biblical writers assume the daily, present, immediate activity of God in life. They assumed that he is working. They assumed that he is the director offstage, but giving the silent cues to the actors and to the stage crew, though you don't see him at the curtain call. But listen, if you think that because he operates largely from the shadows, that he is not there and that he is not active in the lives of his people, you're wrong. And listen, you are in danger. You are in danger. God often works in the shadows of our lives, unseen, but most definitely working. First thing, God works in the shadows. Second thing, God turns situations around when his people draw near to him. He turns situations around. I don't have time to go over the entire story of the book of Esther. Um, Suffice, you know, Esther, by a very improbable contest, became queen over Persia. Persia was the biggest empire before, before the Greeks, the biggest empire the world had ever seen. Xerxes was the king of the world, basically. Uh, he went against the Greeks. The Greeks fought him back. That was the last enemy. And from that time on, the Greeks started to go up and the Persians started to go down. But at that time, they had this vast territory, and Esther becomes queen over the land. And uh, through a series of events, you know, uh, Haman, this man who uh, hates the Jews, uh, gets the king to issue an edict to kill all the Jews in the entire empire, and there was nowhere to run. If, if you have land that goes for thousands and thousands of miles, where are you running to? I mean, where are you going? So when, they, when the edict came out, the Jews all knew that they were dead. And, he, and so Esther goes in and pleads personally with the king. And in chapter 6, as it begins, uh, Mordecai, who got the king to do this edict in the first place, uh, is going in to ask him to kill this man, Mordecai, Esther's uncle. Because Mordecai had the audacity that when Haman walked by, he would not bow down. So before he even asks the king for this, and he's second in command of all the kingdom, Haman, he starts to build a 75-foot gallows that the next day he hopes to impale Mordecai on. And uh, while he goes in to talk, speak to the king, they're banging the nails together. You're going to hear him in the background. But the God in the shadows was working. See, Esther 6.1 says this. That night, the king could not sleep. Now, I don't know about you. I don't consider that a miracle on par with the Red Sea, would you? I mean, it's, you know, I can't sleep, right? But it was God who woke him up in the middle of the night. Listen, i got to tell you something right now. Um, if Esther 6.1 didn't happen... Very innocuous, it seems like, what's the big deal kind of verse? If that didn't happen, everything would have turned out different. The turning point, it would seem, you know, for something like this, it should come from somebody busting in and doing some courageous act, somebody, a major character, you know, saying, you know, here I am to save the day, you know, a great sacrifice, a great action. But the king couldn't sleep. Went to bed that night, a couple hours later, he just 
God kind of nudged him, and he woke up. And the entire story turns on that seemingly insignificant fact that the king couldn't fall back to sleep. During the night, the God in the shadows woke Xerxes up and wouldn't let him go back to sleep. Such a little thing. But often, the story behind the story is the real story. Great turns of events and history happen by little things. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee one day, and he looks at a couple of guys in a boat, and he says to them, come follow me. And they drop their nets, and they go, and they follow him, and the world was never the same. He's walking through a town one day, and a little guy uh, who couldn't see over, you know, kind of a bad guy, tax collector guy, he couldn't see over the crowd. And so he climbs a tree, and Jesus walks up to him and says, uh, Zacchaeus, come on, come on down. Guess what? You, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. If Zacchaeus' parents were born three inches taller, just three inches taller, none of that would have happened. But you know what? Salvation came to that house that day. And he was a changed man. A man who used to use usury, who was betrayed his own Jewish brethren. And his heart was changed. And he paid back many times over what he had stolen. See, the invisible hand of God was working out his purposes in the lives of his people. One writer said this. So, too, there are all kinds of events that are happening in our lives in the present which look pointless, meaningless, even insignificant. Of course, many of them may, in fact, have no appreciable effect on the future. But within the constant stream of circumstances, situations, and events that make up our lives, there are little things happening, little turn of events, little details that God is invisibly orchestrating with his hands, and they form redemptive pivot points in our lives, even if we don't see it happening, even if we can't see it happening. Only oh, yes, Sam, you, you, you wake up in the middle of the night, how do you fall back to sleep? Well, you fall back to sleep by a glass of warm milk or something. Maybe you'll watch television. You'll start reading a book, doing something. Until you get sleepy enough, you doze off again, right? Well, kings back then would do something else. They would have the book of Chronicles, which was really the events of their life and their reign brought to them, and they would have them read to them, which would be like reading the phone book. You know, it's just, I mean, it's, they already know what it's about. There's no, you know, big surprises. It's like, you know, I grew up on Long Island. I went to school in Levittown. My dad did this, blah, blah, blah. I know it. I lived it. It's not all that exciting kind of thing. And usually, they would fall asleep. But as his oval eyes began to turn to slits, you know, this one night Xerxes, something popped up in the reading as dawn's early light appeared, and he sat straight up in bed. Several years before, Mordecai had uncovered a plot to kill him, Xerxes, the king, and as a result, he saved his life, and the people who were plotting against him were executed. So he really, he really saved them. Uh, and it was just, you know, some say, well, that's just, a, it's an honest oversight. No, it was not an honest oversight. This was a major gaffe. This was an embarrassment, and it had to be corrected immediately. Well, Coincidentally, at that very moment that the king sits up in bed very, very early in the morning, he hears the pitter-patter of little feet outside the courtyard, and he inquires, and he is told that at that exact moment, his second-in-command, Haman, 
had just made an appearance in the courtyard to ask him to execute Mordecai. He was coming in to do that. The king's just reading that Mordecai saved his life, okay? So he asked the attendant to summon Haman to come into the chambers, and he had one question for him. In verse 6, he says this, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Haman, you're a smart guy. What should I do if I want to honor somebody that I delight in? Now, last week, we saw what an arrogant, prideful man Haman was. So naturally, you all laughed and it was red. He thinks, he thinks it's about him. He thinks the king is talking about him, that the king wants to honor Haman, because that's what arrogant, prideful people are always thinking. And he goes into this big, long list of things that the king should do for the man he wants to honor, thinking that, you know, he's the man that the king wants to honor. He's the one he's talking about. He said, bring a robe, but not just any robe, bring a robe that the king himself has worn. So that people will say, hey, isn't that the king's robe? Wow, this guy is really special. I can see a robe, but the king's robe? Bring a horse, but not just any horse. Bring a horse that people have seen the king riding on himself. And then put the honored man on top of that steed and have him be led not by a common, common servant, not by a slave, but personally by a prince that the king loves and the king honors and the king has confidence in and as he goes through the street he is to loudly say to everyone so that everyone can hear this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor and right about that time Haman's thinking oh man I just can't get cell phone I gotta tell everybody you know if he had text, he would have texted everybody you know everybody knows to come, you know, be on Main Street in about a half hour. You're going to see something you're not going to believe, right? <laughs> this is the way that pride-filled people are. Everything is about them. Don't you have anybody in your life who you start engaging them in conversation and within three minutes? It's all, it's all, they're talking about themselves. You know what? I, you know, I was dabbling in the stock market. Well, you know what? I dabbled in the stock market. Let me tell you what I did. It's like, wait a minute. You know, and it seems to go that way all the time. Everybody has someone like that. Now, you know what pride is according to the Bible? According to the Bible, pride is concentration on yourself. That's it. It's concentration on yourself. It's being self-absorbed with yourself. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, pride makes you concentrate everything about you. So it makes everything about you so that you don't get into relationships and you don't get into jobs, and you don't do anything unless it makes you feel good about yourself. Therefore, nothing is about the thing you're doing. Everything is about you. Endless ego calculation. You're always adding things up. You're always looking and saying, you know, am I, am I getting the thanks that I deserve, really? People noticing what I'm doing. Am I appreciated? Am I being regarded? How, how do I look? You know, how do people think I look? I mean, how, you know, how does this make me look? Everything is about that. You're always, always, always saying, you know, what about me? What about me? Now, listen, pride, you know, goes in two ways. The one way we all know about. The one way pride goes, and you normally think, and I'm talking about pride-filled people, and you're going, ah, yeah, John, yeah, at work, I know you, right? You got this person in your mind, and usually this is a person who's thinking, you know, I'm doing pretty well, I, I'm, I'm pretty good-looking, I'm pretty smart and pretty savvy, got a pretty nice house, got a pretty nice car, got a pretty ni nice wife. Uh, everything I've done, I've done pretty well. In fact, I've done pretty well for myself. It's all about them. Haman is in that category. 
See, he said in verse 6, now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Haman's the guy we love to hate, uh, which proves that we're not much better than him because we've already compared ourselves to him and we think that we're superior to him and we're up here and we're looking down there. So in a sense, we're kind of prideful too. But there's another end, and I don't want to go into that. There's another end to this whole pride thing. The other, the other end is, is this. If you're always down on yourself, you're always saying, I hate the way I look. You don't like the position you're in. You're constantly beating up on yourself. Do you know why? That's pride too, according to the Bible. Because you are self-absorbed. Everything is about you, according to biblical definitions. You are pride-filled too. So you can go either way. But God's about to turn this situation around. God is about to take the Mordecai-Haman thing and turn it on its head which he always does with people who draw near to him. The man on top, Haman, and the man on the bottom, Mordecai, are about to switch places as the God in the shadows begins to do his thing. But the hidden God, the God in the shadows, has a way of turning things around when we draw near to him. Scriptures, scriptures are filled with the Puzzles of paradox, I call them. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. The bankrupt in spirit. Those who morally declare bankruptcy. Not, you know, we're reorganizing and a month later we come out with a new name. We're still pretty good. We can, we can figure this thing out. I just need another month. No, it's, it's saying, you know what? We're out. We're selling the light. You want to buy the light bulbs? You know, there's 40 light bulbs. Oh, there's 5,000 of you. Would you like to buy them? We'll give them to you for two cents. It's, it's, we're out. That's, that's, it's, there's not, I have nothing to offer. See, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you declare spiritual bankruptcy, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll gain the kingdom. He said, blessed are those who mourn over sin, for they will be comforted. Cry now and be comforted then. Laugh now over sin and cry later. Blessed are the meek. The meek who, uh, meek people are those who show a quiet strength through a trust in God, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, when I say meek politician, who, can you think of anybody? Like anybody come to mind, uh, especially in this last cycle that we've just been through? Usually those two words are mutually exclusive, aren't they? Meek and politician. See, I, I've, I've seen a lot of arrogant politicians. I've seen a lot of boastful politicians. I've seen a lot of, a lot of politicians, both men and women, who grab for a little slice of what they can get now and here and now of the earth. But one day... They're going to lose it all. And the meek, Jesus said, will inherit eternal blessing. You want to be a great leader, Jesus said? What did he do to his disciples? He washed their feet. He washed their feet. He became the greatest servant of all, the chief servant. Those on the bottom will find themselves on top. Those who pursue top status will find themselves looking up. God seems to delight. The God in the shadows seems to delight in going about business in ways that you would not expect him to go about business. The God in the shadows delights in turning situations upside down for his children. But here's the thing. God turns situations around when his children come to him. That's part of the story behind the story, which is the real story.
you remember what happened at the end of chapter 4? Remember that? And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, the one under your seat, that's your Bible. Take it home with you. That's a gift for you if you're, if you're, if you're new here today, okay? But chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, Esther, having decided to take that dangerous step, remember we talked about this extensively, that dangerous step of appearing unannounced to the king, which she could have lost her head for that, to beg for the life of the Jewish people, who the king doesn't even know she's Jewish yet, um, you know, and to beg for her people. She goes to Mordecai, and she asks her uncle to do something, and then she says, get the word out and have everybody else do this too. Do you remember what she did? She asked him to fast. And we know in Scripture, fasting always precipitated by, was always precipitated by great need. Something cataclysmic is happening. And, and a heightened understanding of a need to repent for sin. Now listen, the events of chapter 6 that were just read to us rest heavily on the actions of chapter 4. As the people prayed, as the people realized that, you know what, we've gotten far away from God. We have gotten far away from the God in the shadows. And they drew near to him. His purposes were put into action. Joel chapter 2 and verse 13 says this. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Hosea chapter 6 says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. See, they had lost their bearings in Persia. The Jews that stayed behind, you know, they, they lost their distinctiveness. They lost their saltiness. They had become like the pagan people around them. Their knowledge of God's care and provision for them out of Egypt, through the desert, into the promised land, in spite of their many adulteries and failures in following him, had still resulted in his gracious hand, even then, being extended to them. But their history and the stories of their youth had become filled with, you know, it, was, it had no more meaning than like a Grimm's fairy tale or a Dr. Seuss storybook that we read to our children at bedtime. You know what Jeremiah said? The prophet? Jeremiah said, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The psalmist writes in chapter 66, Come and hear all of you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayers or removed his steadfast love from me. Haman goes into the king, and he felt at this point in his life that he was bulletproof. This point in his career, you know, he, he could basically ask for anything, uh, Esther had just honored him by asking him to come to a banquet the next day. By name, make sure you invite, you put, you know, Haman first on the list. So he, he, this guy thinks he, he's, he's bulletproof. And we find, really, that he had merely been fattened for the kill. 
That's what happens in chapter 6. And things were all of a sudden about to change. So, you know, what about you? You got a guy at work who's got it in for you. You don't know why he's got it in for you. You can't remember anything that you've done. It's like, you know, why, what, you know, what's the deal with this? His, his job, it seems, part of his job description, you, you want to kind of peek at it because it must say, you know, make Sally's life miserable. You know, while she's here, make her miserable, you know. For no good reason at all. But as you draw near to God, listen. God has said that he, the God in the shadows, that he will begin to bring about change. That he slowly but surely will begin to turn things on their head. The one verse that we hate to hear when we're going through desperate trials, but we quote all the time when we're not, is Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, if you look at that verse, ask yourself some questions. Uh, what does it mean, and we know? And we know, Paul's saying, he's writing to the church at Rome, and we know, well, it, it's a slam dunk. It's a one-horse race. Bet, you know, you can bet on any of these horses. There's only one running. Uh, I think I'll bet on that one. You know, it's, it's, it's a sure bet. You know you're going to win. Okay? And we know, and then he says all things. We know that in all things. What, 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 is, what is the all things encompass? Does it, does it have anything to do with health? Does it have anything to do with family or job or school? Yes, indeed. But you know what it mostly is talking about in Romans chapter 8, if you read through the entire chapter? It's talking about suffering. That's what Roman, Romans 8 is all about, suffering in creation, suffering in our lives. In fact, the Greek word that is used there for God is working, God works, you know, in all things God works, literally means to work together, to help one another, to partner in labor to put forth power together and thereby to assist one another. Do you know what Romans 8.28 is saying? Romans 8.28 is saying that the particular sufferings in the old, all things, whatever that is, God has promised to use to bring about his good purposes in the lives of those who draw near to him. The all things now all of a sudden become magnificent tools in the hands of the God in the shadows for his good purposes and his greatest purpose in your life. You know what his greatest purpose in your life in your life is? To save you from yourself. To save you for, to, for heaven and to save you from yourself and to make you like him. That is the story behind the story. That is the real story. The God in the shadows turns everything into good for everyone that draws near to him. That's the story behind the story. What did James say? Remember what James said? People look at him. First people are probably going, this guy has been in the sun too long. He says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He's writing to Christians, James. And you know he's saying? You guys have you got a lot of lack. You got a lot of lack? I got a lot of lack. I have, I, I have tremendous cracks in character and faith and, and just big holes that are, you know, God is slowly filling them in, but they're still there. They, you know, they had them, we have them. Attitudes that are ugly and dark. 
And they were learning firsthand what Augustine would say later on. God has one son without sin, but no sons without suffering. He didn't say to the church he was writing to, James. You know, when you see suffering come, run. Your trial comes, run as fast as you can. Try to, try to heal it. Try to do, you do anything you can. Just get out of it as quickly as you can. Now, he doesn't say, you know what he says? He says, go ahead and lean into your troubles. And while you're at it, bring out the party hats. Because your troubles in the greater scope of life and eternity will be tools in the hands of a purposeful God who works for the most part in the shadows to make you like himself. And there's a reason for joy in that. He says our trials are the very things that when we open ourselves to God's leading, work towards producing in us perseverance, which is the highway to bring us to where God wants to bring us. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. A place where you are experiencing, Christians, completeness and wholeness in our lives, not lacking any good that God has for you. God wants to bring changes to your life, changes that only the challenges of life can teach. See, the God in the shadows turns everything into good for everyone who draws near to him. And when we draw near to God, he turns all situations around for our ultimate good and our ultimate benefit. And in the case of Mordecai and Haman, he did that in a most dramatic way. Look what it says in verse 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse. This is a a little comical, actually. And he robed Mordecai, the guy he hates most in the world, and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him. I, I, I can't imagine he was screaming it that loud, but I, I, he probably said it, maybe a little muffled, maybe he had his hand in front of his mouth a little bit. You know, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. You talk about a reversal. That's a huge reversal. Mordecai was saved only because Haman res- reversed places with him, but it was involuntary. It was involuntary. And he did it through, God did it through a seemingly normal circumstances of life. But you got to know this. Though Haman reversed places under protest, Jesus Christ reversed places with us voluntarily. Jesus Christ is the king you can go to because he, as we heard in the tank, at infinite cost to himself, reversed places with us. The Bible says God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God. Jesus Christ exchanged places with us. He took what we deserved You know what? So that we wouldn't get what we deserve. He switched places. Now in John 17, there's a place where Jesus actually says, Father, give them the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world. That's unbelievable. You know, give them the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world. We're the disciples. You know what glory is? It's not like translucent. You know, you're working around like, hey, we don't need a flashlight. Just, hey, John, come over here, would you? And just... Kind of look in this direction. That's not what it means. Glory is delight. Glory is honor. When you know he loves you that much, when you know that the Son of God loves you that much, that he stretched out his arms on Calvary, that he died a criminal's death 
for no sin of his own, but for the sins of men and women from the beginning of time to the very end. You know what? How can that not change you? How can that not make you different people? You know, what he did was for us. He went through that for us. That's what our ego needs to know. To make us finally forget about ourselves and to put our ego to rest. Doesn't have those needs anymore. And it's not enough to just say, oh, I believe in God. It's a, you know... What you have to see is God coming all the way down and reversing places at infinite cost with you. Because on the one hand, you know, when you know he died for you, it changes everything. To know he was glad to die for you, if that doesn't affirm you, there will, I, I have no, I, I got no other words. I have nothing else to give you today. If you can't see that. Jesus Christ was strong enough to be weak. He was so strong, he didn't even care what people thought. He was so strong, he was able to do the right thing. Folks, listen. The God in the shadows, he turns everything into good for all who draw near to him. You know, actually, a lot of times, the story Behind the story is the real story. Here's the story behind the story. The God in the shadows wants to turn everything into good for you as you draw near to him.